Well, this morning we're going to start on something new. We're leaving Jeremiah, and we're moving into Revelation. And uh, if you put a little extra money in the offering plate, I'll tell you when Jesus is coming back. Um, the book of Revelation, um, it's often called the Revelation. Can we have my uh, my thing on the screen here for uh, my computer for a minute? Um, since we're starting this new series, we're starting, it's technically the book is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And the word revelation means to reveal. You didn't need me to tell you that, but that's what it means. Uh, it comes from the Greek word apocalypso, which is properly translated revealing or unveiling. And uh, modern usages of the words apocalyptic or apocalypse suggest the end times. How many times have you heard that idea? Oh, boy, this is the apocalypse, right? But that's really not what uh, John's intention was. It's not the final destruction of the world, nor was it what the Holy Spirit meant to inspire John to write. He had many visions, but the title is clear. It is the revealing of Jesus Christ, and you're going to see something in a minute about those words, who is the Messiah and the centrality of his person in time and history, and most specifically, the hope that is found exclusively in him. You know, there are many false prophets who founded false religions by using fear and misrepresentation of this text. The misuse of fear by false teachers was to garner a following of people terrified of judgment, terrified of the end, terrified of losing everything, and then to use that fear to control their behavior at the threat of excommunication and even damnation. And that's not what the book of Revelation is about. All right? It was never intended to be that way. It was a circular letter. It's a long letter. But it was really a circular letter to seven churches in Asia Minor. And the, seven, the number seven in all of John's writings suggests completion. It comes from the seven days of creation. Seven is the number of perfection or or completion. And so John uses lots of sevens. There's going to be a lot of sevens in in what we're going to study. If you read the Gospel of John, you're going to find a number of sevens in there as well. And uh, it's it's a very important number to his writing and his thinking. The revelation of Jesus Christ, the purpose is this, to foster hope. It was written to believers who were suffering for their faith in Jesus. Many were outcasts from their families for leaving ancestral traditions. Many were suffering beatings and even death by the ruling powers. Life was brutally hard for them. They were challenged by the premise that if they were loved by the almighty and all-powerful God, then why are they enduring such hardship? You ever ask yourself a question like that when you're going through difficult times? Why, why is God doing this to me? If he loves me. If God loved them, then why are, are people being killed just because they love him? 
doesn't make sense in this world, does it? And yet, this letter is to explain that. The revelation begins both, or explains rather, both the why and the hope. Why is it happening? And the hope that we have in the midst of being faithful to Jesus. There's an axiom that you should remember. What you hope for is what you will live for. And this letter is intended to inspire hope through a realistic view of our temporal reality and at the same time reveal what is happening in the unseen realm. How many of you know there's stuff right now happening that we can't see? All right. So that's why it's called the revelation. It's the revealing of the unseen. It's a revealing of the cosmic conflict between God and the serpent and the revealing of God's power to overcome in due time. So what I'd like to do right now is um, I'm going to have two videos played. These come from the Bible Project. Go ahead and cue those up. If you're not familiar with the Bible Project, go to YouTube, search the Bible Project, and they've got a whole ton of really good videos. The first video is about apocalyptic literature, what it is. And the second video is an introduction to the book of Revelation, part one. So are we ready? It's the end of the world. The moon turns to blood. Mountains crumble. Mutant locusts swarm. These are just some of the strange images we find in parts of the Bible called apocalyptic. The biblical word apocalypse means the end of the world. It actually doesn't mean that at all. So let's talk about how to read apocalyptic literature in the Bible. So wait, the apocalypse doesn't mean the end of the world? No. Apocalypse is a Greek word that means to uncover or reveal. An apocalypse is when you suddenly see the true nature of something that you couldn't see before. Because I don't always see things the way they really are. Right. We all develop familiar ways of seeing the world that can limit or blur our vision. So an apocalypse is like... A revelation. Right. Now, in the Bible, an apocalypse is when God pulls back the curtain to show someone what's really going on in the world from a divine perspective. For example... Take Isaiah the prophet. He's suddenly transported in a vision into God's throne room. Oh, right. He's in God's temple, described as a bridge between heaven and earth. And there, God gives him a divine perspective on Israel's past, present, and their future. So that Isaiah can bring challenge and comfort to God's people in his own day. Or think about the Apostle Paul, who was trying to stop the movement of Jesus, but then he gets stopped in his tracks by a vision of the risen Jesus himself. Yeah, he realizes that he's fighting against the very thing that he's been hoping for, and it changes the course of his life. So these apocalypses give people a heavenly perspective on their earthly situation, and they can give hope. Or they can challenge you. Or make you change everything. Now, those are biblical stories about people having an apocalypse. There are also whole sections of biblical books where a prophet describes extended apocalyptic dreams and visions. People call this apocalyptic literature. And reading these dreams and visions is difficult. I mean, they're filled with strange images. Like, let's take Daniel. He sees ferocious beasts coming up out of a dark sea trampling people on the land. And then a character called the Son of Man is exalted to rule the world. 
what is going on? Yeah. Apocalyptic literature is written in a poetic, imaginative style, and it's packed with symbolism. How can I know what these symbols mean? Well, first, by studying the rest of your Bible. Apocalyptic imagery is based on biblical design patterns that begin in the book of Genesis and then develop throughout the Bible. Like the chaotic sea in the first sentences of the Bible that God tames but doesn't eliminate as he orders creation. And so the sea becomes an image of danger, death, and cosmic chaos. Ah, and the dry land, which comes out of the sea, is the safe, ordered place where humans are supposed to rule as God's image. Yes, and also on the land are beasts that humans are supposed to oversee. But keep reading, and the humans are deceived by a beast. And start acting like violent beasts. Exactly. Now, sometimes a prophet will tell you what a symbol means. Like in Daniel, we're told those beasts symbolize violent human kingdoms. But more often, the authors just assume you know how to trace an image through the biblical story to understand its meaning. Now let's look at the last book of the Bible, the Revelation, because it's one really long vision. The whole thing is an apocalypse. Yeah, and it works the same way. It begins with John the visionary transported to God's throne room, where he sees the risen Jesus as the exalted king of the world. But Jesus is depicted as a bloody lamb. Right. It's a design pattern showing how Jesus is the sacrificial lamb from Israel's Passover and from the Day of Atonement. He gave his life for the sins of the world. And then John sees the ultimate beastly dragon, that spiritual power that energizes violent earthly empires. It's cast out by Jesus, the world's true king. Yeah. Now that reminds me. When I read the Revelation, I'm struck by all this cosmic destruction and violence. I mean, it happens over and over and over. Yeah, in the Revelation, there are three seven-part cycles of God's judgment, and it's another design pattern that connects together the stories of the flood, the ten plagues on Egypt, and the exile to Babylon, and even more. These are moments when humans unleash so much violence and death into the world that God hands them over to self-destruction. It's like a reversal of creation in Genesis chapter 1, as God allows the world and humans to sink back into darkness and disorder. That's sobering. It is. But remember, in Genesis 1, God overcame darkness and chaos with his light and life. And so too in the Revelation. The death of Jesus and the death of the world as we know it is the pathway into the renewed creation that began with the resurrection of Jesus. And so while the Revelation feels like the end of the world... It's actually about the beginning of the renewed world, where heaven and earth are reunited and God's human images rule all creation in the love and power of God. Okay. This is a lot to take in. It is. And there's a lot in these books that is still hard to understand, but the purpose of apocalyptic is really clear. To give us a heavenly perspective on our earthly circumstances so that every generation of God's people can be challenged, comforted, and given hope for the future. All right, we did it. In this series on how to read the Bible, we looked at all the styles of writing in the Bible. Narrative...
the book of the Revelation of Jesus. The author of this book, which is not called Revelations, by the way, is named at the beginning. It was written by John, which could refer to the beloved disciple who wrote the gospel and the letters of John, or it could be a different John, a messianic Jewish prophet who traveled about and taught in the early church. Whichever John it was, he makes clear in the opening paragraph what kind of book he has written. He calls it, first of all, a revelation or apocalypse. The Greek word is apokalupsis, and it refers to a type of literature very familiar to John's readers from the Hebrew scriptures and from other popular Jewish texts. Apocalypse has recounted a prophet's symbolic dreams and visions that revealed God's heavenly perspective on history and current events so that the present could be viewed in light of history's final outcome. And John says this apocalypse is a prophecy, which means it's a word from God spoken through a prophet to God's people, usually to warn or comfort them in a time of crisis. By calling this book a prophecy, John's saying that it stands in the tradition of the biblical prophets and is bringing their message to a climax. And this apocalyptic prophecy was sent to real people that John knew. The book opens and closes as a circular letter that was sent to seven churches in the ancient Roman province of Asia. Now, seven is a meaningful number for John. It's a symbol of completeness based on the seven-day Sabbath cycle in the Old Testament. And John has woven sevens into every single part of this book. Now, with this opening, John has given us clear guidance about how he wants us to understand this book. Jewish apocalypse is communicated through symbolic imagery and numbers. It is not a secret predictive code about the timing of the end of the world. Rather, John is constantly using these symbols that are drawn from the Old Testament, and he expects his readers to go discover what the symbols mean by looking up the text he's alluding to. Also, the fact that it's a letter means that John is actually addressing the situation of these first century churches. And so while this book has much to say to Christians of later generations, the book's meaning must first be anchored in the historical context of John's time, place, and audience. Which brings us into the book's first section, Jesus' message to the seven churches. John was exiled on the island of Patmos, and he saw a vision of the risen Jesus exalted as king of the world. And he was standing among seven burning lights. And John's told this is a symbol of the seven churches in Asia Minor that's been adapted from the book of the prophet Zechariah. And Jesus starts addressing the specific problems that face each church. Some were apathetic due to wealth and affluence. Others were morally compromised. Their people were still eating ritual meals and sleeping around in pagan temples. But others among the churches remained faithful to Jesus, and they were suffering harassment and even violent persecution. And Jesus warns that things are going to get worse. A tribulation is upon the churches that will force them to choose between compromise or faithfulness. By John's day, the murder of Christians by the Roman Emperor Nero was passed, and the persecution of Christians by Emperor Domitian was likely underway. And so the temptation was to deny Jesus, either to avoid persecution or simply to join the spirit of the Roman age. And Jesus calls them to faithfulness so that they can overcome or literally conquer. And Jesus promises a reward for everyone in these churches who does conquer. Each reward is drawn directly from the book's final vision about the marriage of heaven and earth. And so this opening section, it sets up the main plot tension that will drive the storyline in this book. Will Jesus' people endure? Will they inherit the new world that God has in store? And why is faithfulness to Jesus described as conquering? The rest of the book is John's answer. After this, John has a vision of God's heavenly throne room, and he describes it with imagery drawn from many Old Testament prophets. Surrounding God are creatures and elders that represent all creation and human nations, and they're giving honor and allegiance to the one true creator God who is holy, holy, 
holy. In God's hand is a scroll that's closed up with seven wax seals. It symbolizes the message of the Old Testament prophets and the sealed scroll of Daniel's visions. These are all about how God's kingdom will come here fully on earth as in heaven. But it turns out no one is able to open the scroll until John hears of someone who can. It's the lion from the tribe of Judah and the root of David. He can open it. These are classic Old Testament descriptions of the Messianic king who would bring God's kingdom through military conquest. Now, that's what John hears. But then what he turns and sees is not an aggressive lion king, but a sacrificed bloody lamb who's alive, standing there, and ready to open the scroll. Now, this symbol of Jesus as the slain lamb, this is crucially important for understanding the book. John's saying that the Old Testament promise of God's future victorious kingdom was inaugurated through the crucified Messiah. Jesus overcame his enemies by dying for them as the true Passover lamb so that they could be redeemed. Because of the resurrection, Jesus' death on the cross was not a defeat. It was his enthronement. It was the way he conquered conquered evil. And so this vision concludes with the lamb alongside the one sitting on the throne and together they are worshipped as the one true creator and redeemer and the slain lamb begins to open the scroll. It's a symbol of his divine authority to guide history to its conclusion. Which brings us to the next section of the book, the three cycles of seven, seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And each cycle depicts God's kingdom and justice coming here on earth as in heaven. Now, some people think that the three sets of seven divine judgments represent a literal linear sequence of events that either happened in the past or could be happening now or are yet to happen in the future when Jesus returns. But notice how John has woven all the sevens together. So the final seven bowls come out of the seventh trumpet and the seventh seal. And the seven trumpets emerge from the seventh seal. They're like nesting dolls. Each seventh contains the next seven. Also notice how each of the series of seven culminates in the final judgment, and they have matching conclusions. So it's more likely that John is using each set of seven to depict the same period of time between Jesus's resurrection and future return from three different perspectives. So the slain lamb begins to open the scroll's first four seals. And John sees four horsemen. It's an image from the book of Zechariah chapter 1. And they symbolize times of war, conquest, famine, and death. In other words, a tragically average day in human history. Then the fifth seal depicts the murdered Christian martyrs before God's heavenly throne. And the cry of their innocent blood rises up before God like smoke from the altar of incense. And they're told to rest because more Christians are yet to die. We're not told why, but we are told that it won't last forever. The sixth seal is God's ultimate response to their cry. He brings the great day of the Lord that was described in Isaiah and Joel. And the people of the earth cry out, who is able to stand? And then all of a sudden, John pauses the action with an intermission to answer that question. John sees an angel with a signet ring coming to place a mark of protection on God's servants who are enduring all this hardship. And he hears the number of those who are sealed, 144,000. It's a military census, like the one in the book of Numbers, chapter 1. There are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, pay attention. The number of this army is what John heard, just like he heard about the conquering lion of Judah. But in both cases, what he then turned and saw was the surprising fulfillment of those military images in Jesus, the slain lamb. 
So when he sees this messianic army of God's kingdom, it's made up of people from all nations, fulfilling God's ancient promise to Abraham. It's this multi-ethnic army of the lamb who can stand before God because they've been redeemed by the lamb's blood. And now they are called to conquer, not by killing their enemies, but by suffering and bearing witness just like the lamb. After this, the seventh and final seal is broken. But before the scroll is opened, the seven warning trumpets emerge and fire is taken from the incense altar. It symbolizes the cry of the martyrs and it's cast onto the earth, bringing the day of the Lord to its completion. Now, with the seven trumpets, John backs up and he retells the story again, this time with images from the Exodus story. So the first five trumpet blasts replay the plague sent upon Egypt, and then the sixth trumpet releases the four horsemen that came from the first four seals. But then John tells us that despite all these plagues, the nations did not repent, just like Pharaoh didn't in the Exodus story. So it seems that God's judgment alone will not bring people to humble repentance before him. Then John pauses the action again with another intermission. An angel brings the unsealed scroll that was opened by the Lamb. And just like Ezekiel, John is told to eat the scroll and then proclaim its message to the nations. Finally, the Lamb's scroll is open and now we will discover how God's kingdom will come here on earth. The scroll's content is spelled out in two symbolic visions. First, John sees God's temple and the martyrs by the altar, and he's told to measure and set them apart. It's an image of protection taken from Zechariah chapter 2. But then the outer courts in the city are excluded and they get trampled down by the nations. Now, some think that this refers literally to a destruction of Jerusalem that happened in the past or will happen in the future. But more likely, John's following the tradition of Jesus and the apostles who all used the new temple as a symbol for God's new covenant people. In that case, this is an image about how Jesus' followers may suffer persecution by the nations, but this external defeat cannot take away their victory through the Lamb. This idea gets expanded in the scroll's second vision. God appoints two witnesses as prophetic representatives to the nations. And once again, some people think this refers literally to two prophets who will appear one day in the future. But John calls them lampstands, which is one of his clear symbols for the churches. So this vision is more likely about the prophetic role of Jesus' followers, who are to take up the mantle of Moses and Elijah and call idolatrous nations and rulers to turn back to the one true God. But then, all of a sudden, a horrible beast appears. Let the reader remember Daniel chapter 7. And the beast conquers the witnesses and kills them. But then, God brings them back to life and vindicates the witnesses before their persecutors. And the end result is that many among the nations finally do repent and give glory to the Creator God in the day of the Lord. Now, stop. Think about the story so far. God's warning judgments through the seals and through the trumpets did not generate repentance among the nations, just like the Exodus plagues only hardened Pharaoh's heart. But the lamb, he conquered his enemies by loving them, dying for them. And now the message of the lamb's scroll reveals the mission of his army, the church. God's kingdom will be revealed when the nations see the church imitating the loving sacrifice of the lamb, not killing their enemies, but dying for them. It is God's mercy shown through Jesus' followers that will bring the nations to repentance. And this surprising claim is the message of the open scroll that John has placed at the exact center of the entire book. After this, the last trumpet sounds and the nations are shaken as God's kingdom comes here on earth as it is in heaven. So now we know how the church will bear witness to the nations and inherit the new creation, but who was that terrible beast that waged war on God's people? And how will the whole story turn out? John will tell us in the second half of the book of the Revelation.
How was that for trying to keep up? <laughs> I watch all the doodling and I'm like, wow. But at any rate, um, I you know, strongly encourage you to go back to the Bible Project. Watch this several times. There's two parts to the revelation of Jesus Christ that lays out the book and then read it. And I want to share with you, um, even if you have your Bibles, turn to um, Revelation 1, verses 1 to 3. Revelation 1, 1 to 3. And notice what it says. Revelation 1, 1 to 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place, And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And in verse 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things that are written in it for the time is near. This is the only book in the Bible that gives a, a promise of a blessing if you read it and do it. Not that it isn't true for the rest of the Bible, but in this particular revelation, in this uh, apocalyptic uh, letter, there is this promise. And again, it's not given as a timetable. It's not for us to speculate on the time of the return of Jesus Christ, I put a little map up here. You probably see these all the time. Well, this is when the rapture is going to happen. And then this is, these are the events that are going to take place and so forth. And I tell you that as much as people will claim that that's biblical, it is speculatory. Okay? We don't know when it's going to happen. We don't exactly know how things are going to transpire. What we do know is that God's people are persecuted. They're being persecuted today. If you check out the voice of the martyrs, you find out what is going on all around the world. I I have a a text from uh, my friend Joel Van Hoogen, who uh, sent me a notice from a guy in India. His name is Surrender. That's the name of his, that's his name. (laughs) Great name, isn't it? Surrender. He's a pastor of a church in India. And there's a group of people that were pouring garbage on his front yard during this COVID thing that's going on in India as well. And then the guy would go to the police and say, that guy's just got a bunch of garbage in his yard. And so he was explaining to the police, these, these guys are dumping their garbage in my yard. And I, you need to stop them because they're doing this. And, they're, and the police just are turning a deaf ear to it. And it's all because surrender and his church are there. And it's out and out persecution. And there's much worse going on in various places in the world. And so uh, the book of Revelation is not given to us to figure out when Jesus is coming back. It just tells us he is. All right? And it tells us what we need to do to get ready. Jesus, when he was asked by his disciples, when is, going, when is the sign of your coming? He said, see to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. Notice be a lot of false messiahs. You'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you're not frightened. For these things must take place, but that's not yet the end. 
For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But these are simply the beginning of birth pains. And they will deliver you into tribulation. Let's all give a cheer for tribulation right now. Do you see what it's saying? You know what Jesus was? He, he was not whitewashing faith to his own disciples. He was saying, this is going to cost you your life. And the biggest problem with the preaching of the gospel in our country is it promises a good life and prosperity, and that is not what the Bible teaches. To follow Jesus costs you everything. It'll cost you everything. And Jesus said, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Does that sound familiar? Because, uh, let's see, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end shall come. So there is a new heaven and a new earth coming. The Garden of Eden is no longer... We're not going to make a Garden of Eden. We're not going to build one. It's going to come through Jesus Christ and his return. The call to us is to be faithful. Faithful followers of Jesus, knowing that it might cost us. It does cost us everything. How, do, how can we do that? You can't do it in your own strength. You'll never be able to do it in your own strength. You can do it only when you surrender your life to God. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. Invite the Holy Spirit to come into you and take over your life. The people that were martyred in the first century did it by divine power. The people that are being more martyred, even in, as in this generation today, are doing it by divine power. They're doing it with joy. They're doing it with confidence. Where do they get that? It doesn't come from us. It comes from God who dwells in us. And when he dwells in us, he gives us the strength to do the impossible. And the impossible is to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. That's what it means to be born again. And that's what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ. And so this study is not meant to go terrify you. It's meant to give you hope. If you are in Christ, you will conquer. You will prevail, but you're not going to do it with the sword. You're not going to do it with violence. You're going to do it with faithfulness as you proclaim the gospel to people and love them. What this world needs now, and it only can come from God, self-sacrificing love. And you'll never get that love unless you surrender your heart to Jesus Christ. We'll have a closing song and we'll be dismissed.